Hey everybody, it is October 9th, 2012, and it's time for part two of our interview with Brian Deck, mixer, producer, engineer, great guy to talk to. Um, if you didn't check out the first part, make sure you do. He's got a lot of great info. Um, this time we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about some of his methods and ideas on recording. Um, you're going to learn a lot from this show, so stick around. Even if you don't know what he's recorded, he's got some good things to say. So, alright, here we go, part two. While we're on the subject of, of all this stuff, we mentioned electric guitar a couple of times, but what, what would you say is like kind of a go-to for you on electric guitar? I mean, are you a 57 fan? or? I'm definitely a 57 fan. I use them a lot. The microphones I use on electric guitar a lot are the SM57, the Neumann U87, the 421, and the Coles 4038. It's usually going to be some combination of a 57 and one of those other microphones. Usually, they're both going to have the same relative position to a speaker mm -hmm. in the cabinet. So if, if the 57 is right on the center of the cone, so is the 4038. Gotcha. You know, and I try to be very careful that they're in phase, so they're the same difference. Usually, it'll be separate speakers. Yeah. Because you can't get ultimately in phase on the same speaker cone with it's two different microphones. So close, yeah. Obviously, they're in different places. If the 57's a little off axis, the U87's a little off axis, too. Do you find a mic pretty, pretty close? Or? Um, that will change. You know, I'll just keep moving them around until it sounds good to me. Yeah. Ultimately, it would be really great to get it uh, to sound just the way I want it with one microphone. Yeah. And sometimes I'll discipline myself into doing that. And I think that that's a really valid way to record electric guitar as well. And I'm never doing the two microphone thing so that I can split them out stereo. Yeah, just it's to just, it sum them. the thing up in different ways and yeah. sum them together. For sure. So I'm now, uh, as far as um, multi-miking sources, like, do you find that you mentioned like you like one mic on acoustic guitar mostly. Do you find yourself multi-miking things primarily for that reason? Like if you're going to multi-mic something, it's primarily for the reason of being able to like use the mics as different EQ, like the Coles would be darker than the 57 sort of thing? Yeah. When you get them really well in phase and there's no restriction on... Um on what proportion they can be, you know, relative to each other, mm -hmm. then it's a very natural sounding way to be able to vary the tonality of the amp. Yeah. And maybe more natural sounding than to get, uh, say, a, a Pultec EQP1 and just bring the top end and the bottom end in on the SM57 alone. Yeah. You know? Although that's a pretty good way to go too, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, I guess in in some ways there's just no single microphone that sounds quite right to me. Yeah, all. I mean, especially forty thirty eight is such great microphones that I, I think with a forty thirty eight and a good EQ, you can record about just about anything well. Yeah, especially I mean, that's it's always been amazing to me how. You can sit there in front of the speaker and put up the flattest mic of the flattest mics that you have, and it still doesn't sound like your ears because your ears aren't flat. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's impossible just to gauge it from your brain. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
All right. Well, um, now we've kind of talked about some engineering stuff. We'll kind of move on to mixing. And I guess specifically, um, first of all, I guess my first question is, uh, like, do you do you mix like on a hybrid setup or is it in the box or how is your workflow kind of set up? I work in Pro Tools basically because they were the first company that had a, a good, versatile workflow in their software. Mm-hmm. And it's what I learned. Yeah. I wish I could shake the habit (laughs) (laughs) because they make it so prohibitively expensive to stay current with their fucking shit. Yeah. It's really maddening. It's really maddening. I don't like them as a company. Well, then they stop. Like, like, if you don't upgrade, then they don't support it, you know, and they don't give you support. Yeah. Yeah, Stuff like that. I I can understand stuff becoming archaic and, and them not being able to you know, employ support staff endlessly yeah. for stuff that almost nobody's using anymore. But, you know, I'm not talking about that. Mm-hmm. I'm in 9.0.6 right now, and they're telling me that stuff isn't going to work anymore when we go to 11. Yeah. And that I'm going to have to make this huge reinvestment yeah. in order to, to keep my stuff at home current with the studios that I record at. Yeah. And it's just maddening. And so there there was a point several years ago where I tried to transition to logic. Uh-huh. And um, maybe it's because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I couldn't make the transition. I couldn't work with audio in logic in a way that was intuitive for me. To have to open a sound file into a different window outside of the arrange window just to edit things at the sample level was really, really a problem for me. Mm. You know, I'm sure I would have learned the key commands eventually. Yeah. It sounded good to me. Yeah. For some odd reason, Apple's logic made really shitty sounding MP3s in spite of the fact that iTunes makes good sounding MP3s. I was never able to reconcile that. But aside from that, I think that the, the program sounds really good. They give you a really versatile suite of plugins with it. Yeah. I didn't feel like I needed to go invest in a bunch of third-party plugins to make it a viable platform. Yeah. But I couldn't make the adjustments, and I worked too slowly, and I almost lost one gig because they had asked me to throw together a couple demos so that I could you know, sort of illustrate things I was talking about mm-hmm. to them. And uh, I couldn't do it. I just, mm. you know, people talk about how it's such a great demoing and song creation software. It was baffling to me. Mm. So I work in Pro Tools. Gotcha. For better or for worse, I work in Pro Tools. I have uh, Apogee interfaces. I have uh, DA16X mm-hmm. for 16 outputs, which originally I bought a dangerous what do they call it? The two bus? Yeah, yeah. Two bus. The summing thing, yeah. And um, and then I have a Rosetta 200 for my input device. Gotcha. And I use the 16X as the clocking source because it has a big bend internally. So it's a really good sounding setup. And it, you know, it sounded really transparent and great when I first got it. And I was really psyched about that. But it wasn't very long before I started missing some of the analog magic of mixing on a console. Mm-hmm. So over a few years, I bought four channels of Scully 280 electronics. Scully was a tape machine manufacturer in the 70s. Okay. And so these are the line amp units from those tape machines. Okay, okay. 
they have the same UTC input transformer that original 1176s had. Gotcha, yeah. They have the germanium transistor line amp stage that you go through, and the uh, transformer output. So four of my outputs go through the Scullies, and then I bought um, an Electrodyne E802 rack mixer okay. from the 70s for eight more of my outputs. Gotcha. And so 12 of my 16 outputs are going through transformers and, and line amps. And I'm really very happy with that. I'd like to have 16 more outputs, um, but I just can't afford it right now. Gotcha. And so you, and then do all those run through the dangerous? Yeah. All those come back into the dangerous. And cool. the E802 has eight in and two out. So, you know, some of the summing is happening in the E802, and then the rest of the summing is happening in the dangerous box. Gotcha. Cool. So what do you find yourself routing? You know, I mean, obviously, if you have a big mix on your hands, then you'll have to do some summing within Pro Tools. Um, do you find yourself doing, right. like, like, primarily groups of things, or you try to, like, prior, like yeah. prioritize certain, yeah, like, prioritize certain I make elements? sure that the lead vocal has uh, its own channel. Mm -hmm. And... Lately, for me, that's always been one of the Scully channels. Gotcha. So if you're familiar with how the dangerous summing box goes, you can there's a switch for every pair to make them mono or stereo. Yeah. So I'll make, I'll make the first pair on the dangerous box mono, and that will be the lead vocal and the bass. Gotcha. And then both of those will be going through the Scully electronics. And then the, the other pair of Scully electronics... Sometimes they sound really great on acoustic guitars. If I want to get a really uh, close and accurate blend of the lead vocal and the background vocals, then I'll make the uh, the other pair of Scully Electronics the background vocal stem. Gotcha. And then things just kind of get spread out across the E802 according to what's left. The drums as a, a stereo output will always get put through the E802. Electric guitars sound really great through the E802. Gotcha. Um, keyboards usually go through there and that leaves me four outputs from pro tools that are not going through any kind of extra analog gear and i keep changing my mind about what to do with those for a while i was preserving one stereo pair of out outputs for uh all my reverbs mm -hmm. but if you think about just sort of conceptually because i'm not very technical at all but if you think conceptually about the math it goes into combining the bit streams of reverbs from various sources down to one bit stream, mm -hmm. as opposed to combining the reverb from its original source in the same output with that guitar or that vocal. It seems like the math involved would be less destructive and easier to do. Yeah. Keep the, the reverb or delay or effects of any kind in with its original source. Yeah. Instrument. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's what I've been doing lately. That, and it'll just be like you know, extra stuff that I don't think is going to benefit maybe necessarily from going through transformers, like you gotcha. know, percussion, and stuff like that. Gotcha. So, do you find that you try to, like, when you're mixing, what sort of like how how do you, what would you say you start you start out mixing a song? I mix on the computer a little bit differently from how I mix on a console in a mm -hmm. studio. 
But since I hardly ever mix on a console in a studio anymore, maybe it's not even worth discussing. <laughs> <laughs> in a way, in in the studio, I think it's beneficial because you've got a fixed number of, of uh, faders, and there are physical things right in front of you, and you can control many of them at one time. I don't have a big control surface yeah. for my Pro Tools setup. I don't like that. I have that ProSonus fader pack, just the one fader. Yeah, yeah. I like to use that for automating stuff. Yeah. But um, I don't have a control server. So in a studio on a console, I like to push all the faders up and get a general feeling for the song in about two run-throughs, you know? Yeah. Without EQ or anything, just get the thing up there and going and sounding cool in a way that gets me a little bit excited and then refine from there. Gotcha. I might mute almost everything after I do that and return to, you know, the drums or the acoustic guitar or whatever. But to get the whole thing generally sketched out really quickly is beneficial in that situation. I don't find that easy to do at all when you're mixing in the box. So that's much more difficult for sure. Yeah, it doesn't feel the same. And so I revert to the way I was taught, which is start with a kick drum. Yeah. Get that generally to where I know it's going to sound right. Bring the drums up around back. Get that closely ballparked really fast and set that on a pair of VU meters to where it's peaking at minus 10. Gotcha. And and that's going to serve you pretty well depending on the type of music. If you've left yourself some headroom, you can always bring it up or down. Yeah. But as a basis, that's always going to put you in the ballpark on the meters by the end of the mix. Gotcha. And then from there, you just sort of start bringing up parts. Do you bring them up um, just sort of, like after you get the drums, do you bring them up in the order of like the main instrument? Let's say the main instrument in the song is like an acoustic guitar. Do you start with that or do you immediately go to like bass? I'll get the drums up and then the bass and then one main instrument to give me the harmonic framework of the song, Mm -hmm. whatever is the most continuous thing from top to bottom of the song. Yeah. And then as soon as possible, I'll get the lead vocal going. Gotcha. And I, I think if, if regardless of the kind of music, it, it feels to me like um, if you have those things really strongly represented in the mix, nothing else needs to be enormously loud. Yeah. You know, you always want powerful drums and bass and vocal. Yeah. And most of the rest of what goes on is shading and coloring. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's a lot of it's in the mid range too, you know, like the the bass and the drums provide your like main rhythm and your root notes most of the time and then your me- mm-hmm. your melody from your vocal and that's kind of like the major you know what I mean? That's kinda of like the majority there, like you're saying. Um, and so your acoustic guitar or your electric guitar is, is sort of you know, I think filler is sort of like a mean way to say it, but <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it's that sort of like you said, a color uh, a, a, and maybe a filling, like filling on a cake. Mm-hmm. And that's speaking very generally. Yeah. I mean, basically talking about rock music or, you know, maybe R&B, maybe hip-hop is still fairly similar in terms of what's important and what needs to be represented first in the mix. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously we're not talking about chamber music here. Yeah, for sure, yeah. You know, do you, do you find that you, you try to mix as, like, quickly to get to not get too bogged down with decisions and things like that? I don't get a lot of opportunity to mix things that I didn't record. Gotcha. That Counting Crows record is an anomaly in my career. Gotcha. So, 
I have an agenda when I sit down to mix something. You know, I've already spent considerable amount of time with the artist with that particular song. It will have started typically several months prior mm-hmm. in demos and rehearsals yeah. and just bullshit sessions where yeah. we're talking about how we want this thing to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, carrying that out through the whole recording process closely with the artist leaves me sort of with a very well-defined mission when it comes to the mixing. Yeah. And so I'm not concerned so much with whether I'm going to lose the plot from working too slowly and getting too absorbed in the details or something like that. Like, I know this thing so well. I know what's ahead of me in terms of what can be done quickly and what is going to take some work. Yeah. And... I'm just completing the plan usually. Gotcha. There are records where the plan is to have a lot of experimentation at the mix stage. Yeah. Shepherd's Dog was specifically a record like that. Yeah. And it's, it I like mean, I, was, I can definitely imagine that from just the sound of it. Yeah. It was a, a lot of that was all about, you know, what can we do with this stuff after it's been realized musically the way that we planned it out? You know, what can be done further? We just really wanted to explore that. What yeah. can be done within the context of this kind of folkish, acousticish, traditionalish music? Yeah. How far out will people let us take that? Yeah. And so, because that definitely sounds a lot different than his earlier work. That is kind of kind of like a cut and dry sort of like guy with the acoustic guitar type stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the Shepherd's Dog has a lot more experimentation. There's lots more. For, I mean, aside from just more full arrangements from the musical side. Just the the processing that's that's done on it is much different. There's doubled vocals and there's you know unique reverb sort of textures and like delays and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you find that uh, you know when you're in a situation like with the Counting Crows when you didn't record it, do you do you find that to be harder to mix or easier to mix? Um, I think um, first of all, it's really fun and interesting to hear how someone else recorded stuff. Yeah and play around the tracks that sound different from the way my tracks usually sound. Mm-hmm. You know, inevitably, you're going to have a lot of discussion with uh, with some member or members of the band about what you're supposed to be doing here. Yeah. That sort of verbal communication on the phone, at least for me, <laughs> can be a little confusing. Yeah. You know, it, it's pretty so. easy for me to misunderstand my mission and end up going way too far down one path before someone has corrected me. Yeah. And um, that can be a frustrating thing, you know? Mm-hmm. You have to sort of decide not to be frustrated by that because it's almost <laughs> inevitable, again, for me. <clears throat> but then, you know, it's always it's gratifying in the end to finally realize, okay, here it is. Here's how we do it. Here's what we're doing. Here's why. I get it now. Yeah. There's always sort of that moment in a project like that where I go, all right, I get it now, and then then we can get really close every time. Yeah. I think one of the hardest things for a lot of people to understand and and listeners to grasp is is the whole idea of compression and, and in general over a whole mix, you know, like the way you compress this versus something else, um, you know, because again, it's all you're kind of working in the frame of a of a bigger picture rather than just like how awesome can we get this kick drum to sound or whatever, you know. Um, so, how would you sort of define your, or I guess how would you describe your 
approach to compressing something. Like when you're when you're listening to something and you decide a compressor, I need to I need to compress this. You know what what sort of things run through your mind? Like what compressor to pick, or you know what kind of compressor do I need? A tube one or you know really fast like 1176 or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's no substitute for having dicked around with a lot of stuff. You know, there, there's no substitute for really listening to all these different kinds of choices and deciding for your own self what you think of them. Yeah. And th this is one sort of uh, aspect of our art and craft that I think is like... There's so many uh, opinions mm -hmm. that can be had in all the forums that oh, absolutely. are contradictory and confusing. That I think that that's, that's sort of a bad way to go. I think people need to get their hands on this stuff and dick with it. Yeah. And if you're in the presence of a good engineer who has a discography of stuff that you know you like, get their opinions. Yeah. But to get to, to gather opinions from people who maybe seem knowledgeable on the forums yeah. and maybe you know who they are and maybe you think you maybe like some stuff that they've done or <laughs> yeah. shit like that. It's really not helpful. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to come to terms with compression and do it decently. I don't know that I'm the best person to ask this question to. <laughs> one thing, one thing I know in the, in the particular studio setting where I came up it was it was not top flight gear that we were dealing with. It was I came up in the studio where we had a Harrison Raven console hmm. and an old MCI twenty four track at first, and then later on it was an Atari MPR eighty, and um, there was some pretty good rack stuff. There were no outboard preamps hmm. back then. You just recorded with the console. It was yeah. at the studio. That's what you did. But yeah. You know, there was, there was some Pultec equipment in the rack, and there was some Yuri equipment in the rack. Everyone was really concerned with making things really transparently well-recorded. Mm -hmm. That was the entire mission. And the idea at that point was that, um, essentially, compression was a distortion of the signal. Hmm. And so it was to be avoided whenever possible. Gotcha. And so that formed my probably the first 10 years of my engineering was just that that's sort of what I had been told, or at least what I understood from my, what I'd been told yeah. early on. <clears throat> Not too long ago, I think I got my head pulled out of my ass regarding this issue <laughs> to a great extent. Not in terms of, like, truth, but in terms of what it is that I actually have always liked. Yeah. When that Record the Beatles record or uh, book came out, Mm -hmm. It was really eye-opening for me. And I think if I thought about logically how much compression went into the making of those Beatles records, I would have known, I would have been able to sort it out with my ears, but I just had never actually thought about it. Yeah, yeah. But they laid it out, man. That shit went through the Fairchild with several dB of compression like three or four times by yeah. the time it was mixed. yeah. Not to mention the fact that in order to have a decent signal-to-noise ratio back then with those tape machines and those tape formulas that they were working with, um, they were slamming shit to tape. Yeah, so you were already getting the compression and the saturation and, from that. Yeah, especially when Jeff Emmerich got a hold of things, mm. because he was all about it. Yeah. So um, 
that sort of finally gave me made me feel like I had a license to go ahead and really, you know, I I had already understood like severe compression for effect yeah. on drum rooms or overheads or sometimes electric guitars or whatever. Yeah. But just like gobs of compression as a basic modus operandi, I, I hadn't really cleared that with myself. Yeah. Now I understand that the shit that I always liked that was coming out of Abbey Road and Olympic Studios and Trident Studios in the 60s and 70s was really, really compressed. You yeah. know what's another thing that made that abundantly clear to me was, I don't know if you uh, ever got any of this, but a short while ago, uh, maybe five years ago, people were trading around what were allegedly original uh, transfers, digital transfers of the analog tracks from... Killer Queen. Hmm. No, I hadn't heard about that. And uh, there was uh, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Wow. There were a few various songs out there, and like the vocal tracks on the Queen stuff were just crushed. Hmm. Just absolutely, I mean, there was no dynamic range left in that shit. Wow. And it, it sort of changed my understanding of like, well, that's the sound. Yeah, yeah. You know, That's completely smashed, 8 to 1 or higher on an 1176 is rock vocals. Yeah, yeah. And and it's so funny, so, too, because then you have these other engineers, like the the guys that grew up recording orchestral or, like, jazz that are like, oh, compression is the devil, you know, and all, you know, the, all these, like, wives' tales about compression, and you're just like, what? I mean, this guy, he's his, his recordings sound great, but in your brain, you can't... You know, the difference between a jazz recording and a rock recording, you know, again, to your to your ear might just be like, they're both amazing recordings. But to the technical side, the jazz one might have very little compression and the rock one has tons on everything. But they both are valid. Like, they're both valid forms of music and they're both pleasing to your ear. So it's so hard for someone to make that, uh, like, discerning, you know, decision like, okay, this is a rock song. I don't want to use too much compression because this guy said, you know, compression's the devil, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And, you know, they, right. they they start thinking about what other, like you said, just like you said about someone on the forum or whatever says they, they like compression a whole lot. And then you end up d compression all over your jazz recordings because you think, you know, oh, that's, this guy likes compression, so I need to use, you know, compression a lot. But then you realize that he recorded stuff in the 80s or 90s and just crushed the crap out of every compressor he had. Right, which is why I say there's no substitute for just getting your hands on it and playing with it yourself. Yeah. Um, what's what's kind of your stance on the whole, like, plugins versus hardware in terms of compression? I do a lot of compression when I'm recording. Mm -hmm. I think that software compression and limiting excels at, at, at just the, the function of compression, you know, controlling dynamic range. Yeah. I think uh, can be done in a, from a mathematical point of view more effectively and more transparently with software. Mm -hmm. But the hardware has a sound. Yeah. And that sound is being more and more effectively modeled in software. But as of yet, it's still not the same. Yeah. And so... You know, I had grown accustomed to using those colors. I mixed on a console for a very long time until maybe four years ago. I, 
I was still doing that. I was my manager's last client to build a mix room at home. He's like, why aren't you doing that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I like to get the sound, you know, and the sound of the, the sound of the hardware compressors is to some extent the ballistics of the compression, but to a great extent, it's the electronics themselves, it's the transformers yeah. and the amplifiers that are inside of these yeah. things. And the different gain so, stages that you have to run through just even if you're not doing any compression. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I make sure that I get as much of that flavor as I want in the recording stage, it's not uncommon for me to have three compressors on a vocal track. Gotcha. And, for instance, I don't know if you know the band Margot and the Nuclear So-and-Sos. Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. Um, but, like, with Richard's voice, you know, I talked about A being microphones, trying different mic pre's, while I also go through the same process with compressors. And for his voice, what we ended up deciding that we liked was going through... And 1176 at 12 to 1, just knocking down quick transients. Mm -hmm. Then going into the LA3 and getting our general compression, um, which was pretty pretty strong. You know, mm -hmm. I was allowing it to compress up to 4 dB or so. Yeah. Um, but then we just liked sonically the sound of going through the LA2. Gotcha. And so we did. And it almost never registered that it was doing any compression at all. Yeah. But I just it just made it sound better to me. I find that some analog compressors, not all, I mean, some of them really can pump, but I feel like some analog compressors don't sound as, like, noticeable as a lot of the plugins. Like, they're a little more forgiving. I don't know if that's something you've experienced. I think it all depends on how you use it. Mm -hmm. Although, I, I will say... The, uh, the Massenberg hardware compressor is a thing unto itself, and I wish to hell that there was a digital version of that. Yeah. George, are you listening? Yeah, exactly. He, he, um, he seems like the type of guy who might not ever want that <laughs> modeled. <laughs> well, he lent his EQ curves to the Sony Oxford EQs. Yeah, that's true. Which I love. Like. Yeah, what are you George, doing? call me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those can be very, very transparent. They're hard to understand because, it, for me anyway, because it's the only compressor that's ever had crest factor on it that I know about. Hmm. But um, if if you spend a little time with it, you start to understand it, and it can be super, super transparent. Yeah. Um, it always amazes me how some some compressors, you know, and 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 you wonder, you know, are the how accurate are all the meters on some of these? You know what I mean, like. Um, some compressors will show they're doing like 15, 20 dB reduction, and you're like, I can hardly even hear it doing anything, you know? Like, right. But then your wave, oh, yeah. your waveform is just flat, you know? I mean, right. But then others, you're doing two decibels of compression, and you really hear it. I mean, and it just sort of depends, I guess, on the model. I mean, like something like an 1176, because it's hard knee and because it's fast, you know, it's a little more obvious in a lot of situations. Yeah. But, a, you know, but I like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, in, in a lot I of situations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're, um, they're hard to beat. This was a thing for me. Actually, come to think of haven't thought about this for a while, and I think I feel the same way that I felt about it a long time ago. But when I got my first Pro Tools system, I bought the Waves Gold Bundle at the time. Mm -hmm. That was the top bundle that they had. Yeah. And um, 
they had not tipped their hat at that point in the direction of retro interface. Yeah. They were they were not making rotary controls to be moused upon, which I think is fucking retarded. <laughs> yeah. They were not tipping their hat in the direction of modeled VU meters that have some bullshit ballistics that's supposed to look like an old VU meter. Yeah. They were making stuff that was very accurate and where the the interfaces were intuitive. Yeah, like the uh, like the um, C1 and stuff like that. The C1, the Renaissance compressor, the Renaissance EQ. I remember their EQs, the Waves EQs, were the first EQs to give you a visual representation of the curve that you were imposing on something. And I, I realized after having sort of lived inside my box for a couple of years and then getting back to um, maybe another studio with hardware stuff that I was able to better hardware EQ things now that I had that visual in my head. Yeah. I've been taught by, by working with that stuff. But so much of the market has gone whole hog in the direction of, of vintage retro-looking interfaces. Yeah. That's sort of a bummer for me when it comes to compression. I think that the, the model that was set up by the Waves Renaissance plugins where they had the sonics available of of the old sounding stuff or um what's the other one is it mcdsp yeah they make that uh they make uh like compressor bank and stuff like that yeah compressor bank and filter bank they still have really good interface interfaces i think where they offer the sonic possibilities of the old gear but the that have very forward-thinking interfaces. Yeah, I wish people would stick with that. Yeah, because I think the part of the part of the look, like making a plugin that looks cool, is just one more way to just market it as being better, even if it's not. I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's all about you, making money. Yeah, you, making you money. look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, it looks like an LA three. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean. So I decided that I'm hearing an LA three. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, and and when you look at like I've done I've done some tests on some plugins. Like a friend of mine sent me a link to this software where you can load a VST or a or a plugin of any kind and look at what it's doing to the frequency response and look at what it's doing to the harmonic distortion and look at what it's doing to the phase shift. And you know, like you pick up uh, like some uh, like Renaissance EQ, like you mentioned. And you know you boost the top, and it shows on the frequency response that it boosts the top like you see it. And then you know you pull up like some fancy version of a you know waves like whatever Poltec EQ or whatever, and you boost the top, and it looks almost identical, you know. And it's like, is it really doing anything other than the Renaissance EQ could do? Other than that, it just looks nice, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean. Because because the harmonic distortion didn't change, the phase shift was the same. You know, it's like I don't even know how really in depth they get into modeling the saturation on some of these units. I mean, so, I mean some yeah. some companies do. Like I know the UAD plugins probably work a little harder at getting that. Um, but I know some of these plugins, you know, they just don't. Like you said, they don't really have that that dynamic change of pushing into them a certain way. Yeah. I own uh, URS saturation, uh, you know, and yeah. everybody has a version of that now. Yeah. But um, that came out before it was super fashionable, and it, it offers, you know, 
some very basic tape saturation sounding stuff and yeah. some tube saturation sounding stuff and some transformer sounding stuff and I find usually I've gotten what I want out of that. Yeah. I'm a big um, I'm a big URS fan. I'm a big URS fan for sure. I uh -huh. I, I have that one and Again, that's one of those those companies that, like you said, they kind of ended up on the bandwagon of trying to make things look a little more like, you know, like the hardware, I guess. But some of their plugins that are like like Console Strip Pro or something like that, or some of their plugins that are a little more like just look like a plugin, less like a hardware. You know, they they sound great. The saturation's awesome. I have that plugin too, and you know, it does the job. And it's not like, oh my gosh, it looks like an old. <laughs> tape machine so you know it right yeah so it sounds yeah, great like the stuff the massey stuff does a good job of of uh having a reasonable interface but but um really kind of stellar sonics yeah for sure all right cool well um we'll wrap up here i'm gonna run through a quick like rapid fire type thing where you can just kind of spit off the first thing that comes to mind all right so we got Let's just do kick drum. API 121176. Cool. Snare. SM57 or Sennheiser 201, API or Trident Mike Pre 1176. What about toms? If you mic the toms. <laughs> <laughs> when miking toms, Sennheiser 421s, John Hardy M1, and whatever compressor you have left. <laughs> yeah, like snare bottom almost. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, what about like overheads or room mics? Overheads, either 4038s or Neumann U67s, or if you're at the old engine studio, 367s. <laughs> um, and, oh gosh, uh, Neve or, or Trident, um, Neve 33609 compressor. Gotcha. And that goes for overheads or rooms, so that's a good way to go either. Gotcha. Um, what about bass? Bass. 421, um, some simple passive DI with a Jensen transformer. Uh, um, I like tube preamps for that, uh -huh. but there's not one that I favor. It depends on what's in the room. Otherwise, um, just looking for something that's really stable and and undistorted. Yeah. And uh, frequently distressors. Yeah. DBX one sixty sound cool. Yeah, like the, the VDU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. What about uh, electric guitar? Like, a, let's say, let's do a clean and then a then a distorted. Unless it's the same thing. Clean. SM fifty seven in conjunction with U87. Um, uh, API or Trident and um, Yuri compressors. Cool. What about uh, piano? Piano, there's several different things I do. Um, frequently, I'm not going for a super attacky sound and I'll go with large diaphragm condensers um, back away from the hammers on the soundboard. If I'm looking for a brighter, more attack sound, I'll go for a brighter, smaller diaphragm mic over the hammers. Mm -hmm. um, 
sometimes if I'm not getting the bottom end out of a piano that I like, I will mock, mic the back of the soundboard with either a 4038 or a U87 in Omni so that I'm not getting proximity effect. Gotcha. What about... Uh, uh, a 33609 compressor on a stereo piano is a good fucking way to go. Cool. Cool. Very cool. What about uh, distorted guitar, distorted electric? Distorted electric, 57, 421, API, um, API or 1176 compression. Cool. We talked a little bit about vocal, but like, you know, like you said, go for, go for vocal again. No. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be rushed into that decision. Fair enough. Now, what about backing vocals? Backing vocals, um, that decision has to be made relative to the lead vocal sound. Mm -hmm. Typically, you want it a little bit darker yeah. and a little bit less detailed. So, you know, a go-to would be a 4038, or, uh, or if you're in a room where you don't want to hear the back of the microphone, mm -hmm. the room is too live for some reason, I guess you could baffle it off, or you could go for something more like a uh, RE20. Yeah. But then you're you're most likely going to be EQing that. Yeah. Do you find yourself doing like more or less compression relative to the lead? Um. Well, you want them. You want background vocals very stable and not stepping out. So um, you want them pretty compressed, whether or not it's more or less than the lead vocal, I think, is irrelevant. You just are going to want them pretty compressed. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, um, I mean, I guess that's all the questions I got for you. I mean, if you want to add any ending remarks, you can do that. Advice for people listening, stay inspired. I read the best advice that I can remember hearing in a long time in a short interview with George Mastenberg and Tape Op a couple years ago where he was saying to, to young readers, he was saying, find a pair of speakers, best pair of speakers you can afford, put them in a room, and listen endlessly to the music that you love, and adjust the sound of that room with simple things like um, blankets and egg cartons until that music that you know you love is sounding like the wave that inspired you to begin with, and that's your perfect mixer, and now get busy. Mm. But just for me, there's such a high level of professional burnout in what it is that we do. Yeah. Just staying inspired, I think, is the most important thing. Gotcha. Nobody gets into this out of a sense of drudgery. Mm -hmm. You got into this because you thought you loved it. Yeah. Either find a way to make yourself continue to love it, or go do something the fuck else that you enjoy. Gotcha. Be a welder. <laughs> I love welding. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much for tuning into this uh, episode of the Recording Lounge. There will be some more episodes coming up real soon. Um, I've got other interviews that I've already done that I haven't edited that um, are going to be up sometime soon. Um, kind of like now in sort of backtrack mode where I'm making podcasts and then editing, editing them later to the point where... Uh, I can put them up. So, hope you enjoyed this. Uh, email me, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com with any thoughts or questions or ideas for shows that you want to hear. Check out the Facebook page. Uh, just search for Recording Lounge. And um, I will talk to you guys soon.